But just understand that we're kneeling before uh, the Lord and coming to him with thankfulness. All right? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you because every good and perfect gift that comes down comes from you. We have been um, recipients of your goodness and your kindness and your provision. Uh, Great is your faithfulness to us. First of all, we are thankful that we know you, that you have opened our eyes and you have shown us the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have uh, made it possible for us to be in relationship with you through your son Jesus. We are grateful for his sacrifice of his life on the cross as our substitutes. We could never, ever have bridged that gulf We were just in too deep. We were alienated, and we had no way of improving ourselves or our condition. We were were dead, we were blind, we were lost. And Jesus went to the cross, and with his life, he paid for our sin and made it possible for us to have our sins forgiven and for us to be in right relationship with you and for us to live a life where we enjoy your grace and your mercy on a continual 24-7 basis. You have been so good to us. You've been so kind to us. We look back over this last year, and we see evidences. We see daily evidences of what you have done for us and how you've provided. It doesn't mean that our lives are perfect. It doesn't mean that our lives are free from difficulty or from hardship. You bring that hardship and that difficulty into our lives because that's how you make us better men. If life was always easy, if life was always just pure affluence, if life was always just relational joy, we'd never grow, we'd never mature, we'd never grow up. It's the hard times that build muscle, spiritual muscle. So we're grateful, even for the difficult times. We're living in a time, Lord, where there's a lot of confusion. We're sensing that there's confusion in this nation, at the very highest levels. And, and, and we shake our heads and we wonder what is going on. But we thank you that you are running the show. We thank you that you are working your plan. We thank you that you are absolutely and completely sovereign over the affairs of men and nations, and the entire creation. When it seems that things are out of control, they're not. We are so grateful that we know you. We are grateful that we are not Buddhist. We are grateful that we are not Muslims. We are grateful that we are Christ followers. We are grateful We are grateful for your word. Most of us in here are husbands and fathers, grandfathers. You've given us great responsibilities. We are uh, told in this culture that it is not necessary to fulfill those responsibilities. May we not believe that lie. And as we gather with our families at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, 
May we be careful as the spiritual leaders of our families to make sure that in the midst of all the good food and the fun and the football games and all that good stuff, that we take the initiative as leaders of our family to make sure that you are honored and you are thanked and you are the center and that you are not forgotten. During these holiday times, may we not bow down to idols. May we make sure that we bow down before you and honor your name. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us, this study this semester has been called Snapshots of Stupid. Just a real warm, ingratiating title, trying to make everyone feel good about themselves. Um, Snapshots of Stupid. We've all done stupid. We have all been stupid. Uh, Stupid is a perpetual and constant enemy. And as we have pointed out in this study, there are... um, Uh, There are two kinds of stupid. Uh, There is permanent stupid, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, We all know people that are permanent stupid. They're they're not teachable. They're not approachable. Um, They feel that they've got got it all wired. Um, They're not fun to be around. Uh, They're hard-headed. They're hard-hearted. And... What we need to make sure of is that we're not one of those people. Um, we're all afflicted with a condition if, if we're fortunate and, and if we're wanting to grow. Uh, we wanna, what we want to be is we want to be teachable stupid. That when we do things that we wish we hadn't have done, when we err, and, and, and you know we're going to err until we die. Or until Christ returns. Um, there are some branches of Christianity that say that it's possible to reach a, a state of sinless perfectionism. Uh, John Wesley had a lot of things right, but he had that one wrong. Uh, John Wesley taught that it was possible to reach a state of sinless perfectionism in this life. And it isn't. The apostle John say, says, if you say that you have no sin, you're, you're a liar. We're, we're, we're sinners, and we will be. Um, a lady came up to C.H. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, um, after a service, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'll have you know that I haven't sinned in seven years. He said, you haven't sinned in seven years? She said, no. He said, you must be very proud. She said, I am. <laughs> she never got it. What we want to do is we want to learn. Uh, As we've said in here many times, the goal of the Christian life is not to grow old in Christ. The goal of the Christian life is to grow up in Christ. You can't grow if you're not teachable. Um, If you're permanent stupid, you'll never grow, you'll never mature. Uh, Quite frankly, you'll never enjoy life because nobody wants to be around you. Now, you guys wouldn't be here if you didn't want to grow. Our umbrella verse has been, for this study, we've, we've, had, we've had an umbrella verse, sort of a, a banner verse for this study, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. And in that verse, Paul very succinctly says to young Timothy, he says this, he says, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Some versions would, would say, um, 
be careful about your life and your doctrine. The idea is there are two things. And again, if you've been in our study, by now you've got this drilled into you. I got to pay close attention to my life, to my thinking, to my behavior, to what I ponder, to what I look at, who I hang out with. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching, to your doctrine. Um, And we have seen different examples this semester uh, of those who did not pay close attention to their life. They got sloppy in their life, sloppy in what they thought, sloppy in who they hung out with, sloppy in, um, in what they would put into their mind and what they would meditate on. And then we saw those who were sloppy in what they believed, got away from the authority of Scripture and began to edit Scripture and began to make Scripture fit what they wanted it to say instead of what it actually does say. Uh, how many of you guys... How many of you guys are married? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many of you guys are fathers? Okay. How many of you guys are sons? Yeah, we didn't want to leave anybody out. We, we didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings here tonight. Um, most of you guys are husbands and fathers. Um, when, when we are told in Scripture to pay close attention to our lives... Right under that would come this. If you're married, pay close attention to your wives. What? Wife, singular. (laughs) If you're into polygamy, you're in the wrong church tonight. You see? See, when you pay close attention to your life and you're a husband, then that means you're going to pay close attention to your wife. Um. I want to talk tonight about, I want to talk about marriage. And I'll tell you why I want to talk about marriage. There is an attack being waged on Christian marriages. Did you know that the divorce rate among evangelical Bible-believing Christians is slightly higher than the divorce rate among non-Christians in the United States? You know, it's really interesting to me that... uh, I think when a man gets serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. I think Satan has a twofold plan. If you're a husband and if you're a father. And, and I got to say this. Some of you guys are sitting here and you're thinking, oh, no, he's going to talk about marriage. I'm not marriage. This doesn't apply to me. So the tendency would be just to check out. Well, you know what's interesting about life? Maybe you're single today. But you know what? A year from today, you could be married. You'll say, there are no prospects. Well, and just looking at you, we understand why. (laughs) It's completely understandable. But some gal may come along that, um, you know, you know, God does miracles, guys. (laughs) Those of us that are married, we've seen God do miracles, right? You, here's what I'm saying to you. If you're single, you might want to listen up to this because you don't know where you'll be in a year. And that may be the furthest thing from your mind. But there are a lot of guys in here that could tell you stories about marriage being the furthest thing from their mind, and 12 months later they were married. Amazing how I know guys, I've met guys, that marriage was the furthest thing from their mind, and a year later they were married and they had three kids because they married a gal who brought three kids into the relationship. Amazing how life can change so rapidly and so quickly. 
So just a word to the wise. If you think this doesn't apply, you may want to pay attention because it just may apply sooner than you think. The enemy has a twofold strategy when it comes to men, in my opinion. Here's his, it, it, and it all has to do with our, with our families. Now remember, Paul said, watch your life. Pay close attention to your life. If you're married, when you pay close attention to your life, that's going to mean that you pay close attention to your wife because she's your partner. Till death do you part. Here's the first strategy of Satan, in my opinion. What he wants to do is, with every Christian husband in this room, is that he wants to alienate and then eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. What he wants to do is, he wants to put a wedge in between you and your wife. You say, well, Steve, wait, wait, wait a minute, I've been married 30 years. Well, quite frankly, that doesn't matter. The interesting thing about the enemy is he never quits on strategy. Uh, I, I've read studies that say the, the, the most difficult years for marriage uh, are the first seven years of marriage. There's so many adjustments. But then there's another period of time where marriages are very, very vulnerable. And you know what section of life that is? It's the empty nest. It's when the kids are gone, when they take off. Because now suddenly... It's just the two of you again. The thing about Satan is he is very persistent. So if you've been married, um, you've been married three weeks or you've been married, you know, 30 years. And I'm just curious. We've got to ask this question. How many of you guys, uh, hey, uh, you know, guy, I'm hearing a, a something. You guys... Oh, it's Paul's chair. Aha. All right, Paul, you need to get that oil changed, man. <laughs> okay. That's all right. I, I thought it was me. Okay. All right. I thought it was my pacemaker. And I don't even have a pacemaker. Okay, good. Uh, I lost my train of thought. How many guys? There you go. Thank you very much. How many of you guys have been married 30 years or more? Let's see your hand. Wow, that's pretty good. Let's jump. Let's jump up. How many of you guys have been married 40 years or more? Whoa. All right, let's take the big jump. How many of you guys have been married 100 years or more? Okay. I didn't say that it seems like 100 years. Let's ask this. How many of you guys have been married 50 years or more? Look at this. One. Yeah, let's give these guys a hand. Isn't that great? Yeah. David, how long have you been married? 56 years. The one gal. Isn't that great? That's good. I, Jim, I saw your hand. How long have you been married? 51 years. See, a lot of guys in here are hoping to live to be 51. <laughs> did, did I miss somebody else? Some other guys over 50? Right. Sir, how long have you been married? I was married 57 years, but my wife died two years ago. You were married 57 years, and your wife died two years ago. She's with the Lord. Congrats. Hey, you must have had a special relationship. That's wonderful. That's great. Anybody else I'm missing over 50 years? That's outstanding. I mean, in fact, I'm going to ask you three guys to come up and teach this session tonight. (laughs) 
we could learn a lot from these guys. That's pretty neat. Let's go to the other side, just, just out of curiosity. Any, anybody in here been married, say, a year or less? Okay, I see a guy up here. Anybody else, a year or less? A couple guys up in the bleachers. Okay, anybody down here, a year or less? Uh, okay, if you marry a year or less, because I'm having trouble, can you just stand? I'm not going to put you on the spot. I, I'm serious, i just like to know. How many guys get one, two, three, okay, now, let me ask, uh, sir, how long have you been married? Okay. All right, good. All right, good. A year and three weeks, right in the front. How long have you been married, sir? About 10 months. Okay, and back up there? Nine months. How's it going? <laughs> you better say that. Good. I mean, it's, it, it's going well? Good. So what are you doing here tonight if it's going so well? No, I'm kidding. You. Hey, I just <laughs> I said I wouldn't put you on the spot. No. That's great. Now, you know what the goal is? The goal is for these guys, the goal is 57 years, 56 years. 50. That's the goal for all of us. But there's an enemy that does not want us to achieve that goal. What do the scriptures say? For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, that means to cling, and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's plan for every marriage in this room. And some of you guys, you're sitting here, you're sitting here thinking, gosh, that's what I had hoped too, but you're sitting here and you've been through a divorce. And that, that's, that's, that's just a great sadness. Nobody wins in divorce. And there are some of you, and you got regrets, and oh, man, I wish, you know, if I had it to do over. But see, you can't do it over. You're here. This is where you are. So you, you take that all to Christ, and now here you are, and you got the rest of your life ahead of you. Uh, for guys that are on their second or third marriage, you make this one work. You burn your ships. I think it was in 1516. Some of you guys remember. There used to be a course in public school called history. <laughs> there was a guy named uh, Hernando Cortez, and he showed up uh, in Veracruz, and he had 11 ships full of men. And as they made their way into Mexico, and they didn't know what was ahead of them, they didn't know what they were going to encounter, they didn't know what was waiting for them, they just didn't know. It was unknown, it was unforeseen, and as those men made their way on the land, suddenly one of the men yelled. And they turned, and out in the bay, all 11 ships were on fire. Every single ship was going up in flames. Now, do you know who burned the ships? Hernando Cortez. Because now, there was no turning back. Now, they had to move ahead. Now, there was no thoughts of cutting and running. Now they had to be successful because their ships were burned. You know what the problem is in a lot of marriages and in a lot of Christian marriages? The ships haven't been burned. And I'll tell you something. 56 years, 51 years, 57 years, these gentlemen and their wives burned their ships. We're moving ahead. There's no turning back. 
We are committed, better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, till irritation. That's not what it says. Um, until incompatibility. Um, that's, that's amazing. You know, you can get divorced on grounds of incompatibility. You know that, don't you? Which basically says that everybody ought to be divorced. Because everybody's incompatible. We have this thing called now no-fault divorce. Amazing. It's just amazing. That, that's, boy, that, really, that really speaks of our country, doesn't it? Where we've come to no-fault divorce. It's easier to fire an employee. No, I got that wrong. It used to be easier to fire an employee than to get a divorce. Now, it's the reverse. It's easier to get a divorce than it is to fire an employee who's incompetent because they'll probably sue you. But your spouse has no recourse if you want out. So see, in order for a Christian marriage to make it, you really have to burn your ships. Because what's going to happen is, what's Satan's strategy? To alienate and then eventually sever the relationship. And he doesn't care if you've been married three weeks or 30 years or 53 years. He never stops on that strategy. He wants to put a wedge, and then what he wants to do is create a fissure and widen it and widen it, and he'll take years and years and years and years and years. Very persistent. So what's the enemy's plan? Just the opposite of God's plan and how it's always worked. God says, I want the two to become one. Satan wants the two who have become one to become two again. Now, you need to understand that's his plan for your marriage and for my marriage. Every marriage in this room, that's his plan. Then secondly... Secondly, here's his second strategy. He wants to alienate and then eventually sever the relationship that we enjoy with our children. Now, when our kids are small, when they're three, four, and five, how many of you guys have kids, um, let's say under the age of seven? Let me see your hands. Yeah, just look around for the exhausted guys. Those are great years, but man, they're exhausting, aren't they? Those little kids are great but they're tiring. Uh, Psalm 127 says children are a gift from the Lord. Sometimes they're an inconvenience. I mean, just quite frankly, they are, but we love them, and we're so grateful to have them. But it's exhausting raising little kids. Now, when they're little, now what's Satan's strategy? Same strategy with their wives, to alienate and then eventually sever the relationship that we enjoy with our kids. Now, when a kid is four, five, six, seven, he tends to think that his daddy hung the moon. But when he hits 12, 13, 14, sometimes he wants his daddy to go to the moon. Why is that? Well, because they're growing up, and there's a period of life called adolescence. And adolescence is, is white water time. Instead of the calm, placid river, it gets turbulent. And now we got issues, and now we got all this stuff we got to work through. When a kid hits adolescence, how many of you guys have kids in those adolescent teenage years, just going into it or they're in it? Yeah, okay. Here's what happens when a kid hits adolescence. One of two things is going to happen. A kid is either going to go to his peers and together with his peers critique his parents, or a kid is going to go to his parents 
and together with his parents, he's going to critique his peers. Now, what we want to happen, obviously, would be for our kids to come to us and critique their peers. But that doesn't always happen. Why? Because the enemy wants to get a wedge in between us and our kids and have misunderstanding and have things that are not reconciled. Well, Dad, you're so strict. And you know, sometimes dads need to be strict. But we need the wisdom of God to not be hard-headed and stubborn. You say, where's the line? That's where we've got to seek Christ. And we need the wisdom of Almighty God. You see? And by the way, none of us get it right. Some of us, our kids are out of the house. That's why we're not making mistakes anymore. Because they're up and out of the house. But when they were under the house, we were, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody gets this thing right. Nobody. You see? But you seek the Lord and you say, Lord, I need your wisdom. What, what happens is there are going to be misunderstandings and all that. But what you work real hard to do is to keep those things from happening. Why? Because you don't want the fissure to grow and grow and grow and grow. But the enemy wants that to happen. Let's just wait and embarrass that guy. That was terrible. That's all right. Don't you hate it when you forget to turn off your phone? I did that at a, the Phantom of the Opera. I did. Down at Fair Park. I mean, I had people that you would have thought I was Nancy Pelosi. They wanted to kill me. This is my Nancy Pelosi joke. Okay. <clears throat> anyway. Let's turn to Genesis Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. What I want to focus on tonight is not so much the fathering, although that's huge, but I want to focus on the husband side. Um, I think the first guy I ever heard say this was Howard Hendricks. And what Dr. Hendricks said was, the most significant thing you can ever do for your kids is to unconditionally love their mother. Because what that does is it creates a sense of security. It creates a sense of everything's okay. I remember one night, Mary and I were having a slight disagreement in the kitchen. And then it got a little more ramped up. And, uh, and then the levels began to go up a little bit. And our kids were pretty small. And I remember in the midst of this conversation, that was getting a little heated, lava was beginning to flow. I remember one little head coming around the corner and looking. And then another one, suddenly I had three little heads looking to see what was going on because mom and dad were at odds. And I remember Josh, who was my youngest guy, he was about four. He walked in and he looked and he was watching and he walked up and he says, Daddy, he said, are you and mom going to get a divorce? That kind of put an end to the argument right there. He was worried. And I got down on a knee so I could be eye level with him. And I said, no, Josh, Mommy and I aren't going to get a divorce. We're just having a disagreement. Sometimes you and Rachel or John have a disagreement, right? He goes, yeah. I said, we're just having a disagreement. Your mother's wrong. <laughs> no, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. I was thinking it, but I didn't say it. <laughs> it was a teachable moment. 
And I said, you know, Joshi, we don't divorce in our family. We don't do that. When we have a problem, we work things out. When we have a problem, we talk things through. You know how when you guys don't get along and we make you go in your room and sit in there with each other until you work it out and you can't come out until you work it out? Well, that's just that's what mommy and I do. And that's the way life is. And when you get married, you and your wife won't always agree on everything. But you don't divorce. You just work it out. So you don't ever have to worry about us divorcing. That's not an option. You've heard me say this before um, about armed robbery. For most of you guys, armed robbery is not an option in your life. For most of you. Some of you look a little suspect here tonight. But if your visa bill comes in three or four hundred bucks over, and you didn't know you spent there, or your wife, you know, you didn't talk about it, it comes in, and you pay it off every month, is it an option to go down to the 7-Eleven and stick it up? Pull out your handgun and say, just give me, not, I don't want everything, just give me 400 bucks. I've got to pay my visa bill. That's stupid. That's ludicrous. Why is that ludicrous? Because you've eliminated armed robbery as an option. I think I just said this a couple weeks ago. But it's worth saying again. If you've eliminated armed robbery as an option, why don't you do the same thing with divorce? It's just not an option. It doesn't exist. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And you know what I realized? Lou is not here, and, and he does the time thing. Are you doing the time thing, guy? Okay. Well, that doesn't help me. You're, are you going to give me 15? Okay, good, because I'll ignore it, but just give it to me. And then at least I know that I ignored it, okay? Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord, and by the way, guys, you, you realize that this is, this is a just myth that's been laid out for us to show us deeper truth. You understand that. And if you, and if you hold to that, you need to leave right now. It's not myth, it's true. You know what's amazing to me? When we're in heaven, we're going to meet Adam. I think that's going to be wild. So Adam, what the heck did you do that for? <laughs> you bozo? No. <laughs> well, maybe I will ask him that. I mean, it's caused a lot of pain. What were you thinking? What were you not thinking? What was it like? before sin came into the world. You know, we won't have to ask that because we'll experience it. We'll know. We'll meet him. I love the genealogies in the Old Testament. A lot of times we read those when we get all hung up. But the amazing thing to me about those genealogies is that when you put them together, it's, it, it's more than likely that Noah's father, in all likelihood, could have known Adam, sat around the campfire with him. You know, for hundreds of years, Adam sat around the campfire and told those men what it was like before sin came into the world. So this guy, Adam, is the real deal. In Romans, Jesus is called the second Adam and compared to the first Adam. And neither one of them are a myth. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man. Uh, I meant I 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Up until this time, he's been alone. Now, you know what's interesting, guys? When you read from Genesis 1, you read about creation. And God's creating on the first day, the second day, the third day. And then every time God creates, you know what the Bible says? And it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. This is the first time something's not good. And by the way, what's interesting is there's no sin in the world right now. But something's not good. You know what wasn't good? That he was alone. Because we are not made to be alone. I like Louis L'Amour, and I like his Western novels. And I enjoy reading Louis L'Amour. But he's got something wrong. And you know what he's got wrong? He, he's, Louis L'Amour has got a couple. If you read any of his novels, which I enjoy, he's got some themes. One of the themes when you read a Louis L'Amour novel, one of the things he'll tell you is you never stare into a campfire. You know why you never stare into a campfire? Because if somebody comes up on you and you turn, you can't see anything because you've been looking into the fire. Right there, that might save your life one day. You can thank me later for that. <laughs> hey, but back in the Old West, that could save your life. You see? You'll never forget that, will you? That's the most significant thing you'll take out of here tonight. I'll never look into a campfire. But it's true. You're staring into the fire, and you turn in the darkness, you can't see anything. The other thing Louis the Moore talks about in his novels is that you never trust anybody. Anybody. You never trust anyone except yourself. That's just dead flat out wrong. That's what, that's what he teaches. It's that, it's that macho, independent, I don't need anybody, pull myself, my, my bootstrap, nonsense. See, it is not good for the man to be alone. And by the way, marriage is based on two things. It's based on commitment and it's based on trust. You're going to have to trust. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. This is really interesting. And we read this. We've probably read this a hundred times. And I'm going to tell you something. This is significant. This is extremely significant. Because God has created, and Adam is by himself. Now, what's Adam doing? Uh... God's bringing every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. He brings them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature was its name. There's a theological significance here that we've lost in our culture because we had all this nonsense going on in our culture. Everywhere you look, there's nonsense. Everywhere you look, there's anti-God and anti-Bible. We have this nonsense uh, that you don't do research on laboratory animals in order to save the lives of babies. That's absolute liberal, nonsense, reprobate foolishness. You know why? Whenever I, I'm in a hotel, the shampoo, this, this shampoo was not tested on animals. I won't use it. <laughs> What's that all about? Well, who'd you test it on? Huh? Uh, why not? Why wouldn't you test it on animals? Well, because the animals are equal to us. No, they're not. No, they're not. We are made in the image of God. Animals are not. He named the animals, and whatever he named them, that's what they were called. Naming is a ruling function. 
When he named the animals, that indicated he had authority over the animals. So who names your kids? Hillary? Who names your kids? The government? You name your kids. Why? You have authority over your kids. He had authority over the creation. Now watch what's happening here. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every burst to the field. For Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Uh, what's amazing about this whole process, God brought every animal before Adam. Adam's job was to name the animal. That was his job. Now, also what happened as he was naming the animals, he saw the entire creation. And every time he would see an animal, he began to pick up. There was always two. There was always two. There was a buck and there was a doe. There was a rooster and there was a hen. There's always two. There's a male and a female. Now what's interesting is, is that he looked at the whole creation. I think he began to feel more and more alone because there was no one else who corresponded to him. How did this thing begin? It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, now listen, if I was Adam, I'll tell you what I'd be doing. He was single. You know what single guys are doing? Single guys are always looking. And single guys ought to be looking. So here's Adam. He's in the garden. I would think he's looking for someone in the creation that would match up with him. But he's not finding anybody. You know, the hippo walks in. There's no way. You know, the duck-billed platypus. I mean, nothing corresponds to him. But there's always two of everything. But there's just one of him. So then note what happens. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then our verse, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Interesting passage here. We tend to blow over it. He saw the entire creation and there was no one that corresponded to him and he was alone and that was not good. That's why single guys get frustrated. And... What worries me is when a single guy doesn't get frustrated. What worries me is when a single guy isn't looking to establish a family. Now, God has given a gift of celibacy, but not to most guys. For most guys, it's God's plan that they get married and that they have children. For most guys, and if you have that desire, let me tell you something. That's a great desire. That's a godly desire. So if you're a single guy... And you say, you know, I'd like to be married. Great, good, tremendous. That's a godly desire. You want a Psalm 127 situation, you know. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. And you want to have kids, and you want to raise those kids, and build another, that's a great thing. Adam's by himself. He, He exhausted creation. He looks and looks and looks, and he can't find anyone. And then on a particular day, he falls asleep. And what does God do? God takes her up, fashions this woman. And then Adam wakes up. And when he wakes up, here is this 
completely naked woman in front of him. She's got a list? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, she had no, nowhere to put the list. Not, not yet. Not yet, because sin hadn't, hadn't entered the world. There, there was no list. There was just nakedness. Um, he, he saw the woman, and she was naked. And you know what he said? I, I imagine, this guy sees this gal in front of him, absolutely beautiful, naked, and he says, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. That's what he said. That's not how he said it. He woke up, and he saw her, and he said, thank you. He said this, this, the, yeah, yeah. And, and, and what did he say? This is now bone of my bones. This is no hippo. This is flesh of my flesh. This is not a giraffe. This chick corresponds to me. You see? And by the way, he was excited. He was real excited. When we get excited, when you're at a football game and some guy's breaking out for a 78-yard touchdown run, do you jump up and say, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh? No. See, we don't talk this way. You miss the excitement. Here was someone that corresponded to him. First time in history. By the way, this isn't in the text. You may not be aware of this. It's an extra-biblical literature, but... This was all new to Adam, and she's there, and you know, and, and God says, "Hey, go, go, give her a hug." He goes, "What, what's a hug?" So the Lord tells him, and he goes over and hugs her, and then he he comes back to the Lord, and the Lord says, "All right, that's good. Now you go over there and kiss her." He goes, "Well, what's a kiss?" And the Lord tells him what's a, what a kiss is. So he goes and kisses her. He comes back, and he's got a smile on his face, and the Lord says, "All right, now I want you to have sex with her." And he goes, well, what's that? And the Lord tells him. And he goes, really? And he goes over there and comes right back. And he said, what's a headache? <laughs> now, This relationship was to be a permanent relationship. Would you flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me? Now, what sh happened shortly after that, <clears throat> as you're on your way to 1 Timothy 3, what happened shortly after that, as we know, is that sin came into the world. And when sin came into the world, then everything changed. Uh, it was devastating. Uh, they were naked and not ashamed. As soon as sin came into the world, they were naked and ashamed. And they had a sense of guilt. Innocence was lost. Um, everything changed. They were both cursed, the man and the woman, and the serpent was cursed. The man was cursed in his area of work. Remember, he was, to, he was placed in the garden, was going to tend the garden. But now that sin was in the world, he was going to tend the garden with thorns and thistles. There were no thorns and there were no thistles. He was going to work, but he wasn't going to work with thorns and thistles. 
And then the woman was cursed in her area of primary responsibility, which was uh, childbirth and nurturing and raising children, you see. And then the serpent was cursed. Um, when sin came into the world, all kinds of difficulties arose. And then what you see later is that they had, they had two boys. And you see, now the enemy is, is attempting to get in between the two boys. And then you have your first murder. And then your things have just gotten increasingly worse ever since. Now, as a culture moves uh, farther and farther away from the truth of God, a culture collapses is what happens. And we talked about some of this last week. It used to be, in our nation, it used to be um, that divorce was considered a bad thing. It used to be that marriage was so important that we had laws in place to keep marriage from eroding in our culture because we understood that if a nation was going to be strong, it could only be as strong as its families. We understood that if a church was to be strong, it could only be as strong as its families. But as you know, in the 60s, when everything began to shift and everything went to, from uh, uh, moral authority and uh, uh, moral absolutes to moral relativism, then there was a shift in a lot of our laws. I, I remember watching an old movie from the 50s. Mary and I were watching Turner Classic Movies one night. We really didn't know the movie. We just started watching it. It was pretty good. And it was, here was the story. Uh, here was a man, you know, 1950, 1951, just a regular normal American guy, businessman, had a nice wife, three or four kids, you know, just went to church, good citizen, paid his taxes, good decent man, veteran, you know, salt of the earth. Everything's good. Everything's fine. But at work, he meets a gal at work, gets emotionally involved with the gal, falls in love with her, comes home and announces to his wife that he doesn't love her anymore, loves this gal at work, and wants a divorce. And here was what was interesting. Here's the rest of the movie. He wanted his wife to give him a divorce, but she wouldn't grant him a divorce. Because you see, back then, you just couldn't get a divorce. Your spouse had to give you a divorce. They had to grant you a divorce. And his wife wouldn't give him a divorce. And that was the whole rest of the movie. And he was mad, and he was upset, and he was irritated, and this went on for months and months and months and months and months and months. One day the guy wakes up, looks in the mirror, and he thinks, what the heck am I doing? How could I have been so stupid? I'm throwing my whole life away. This gal isn't what I thought. What is wrong with me? I love my wife. I love my kids. I can't do this. And you know what he did? He went back, asked his wife forgiveness. She forgave him. They renewed their vows, and that was the movie. Because Hollywood used to make movies like that. It was a great movie. See, the guy went temporarily insane. Sometimes we go temporarily insane. We lose our minds. Now what we've done, and see, they used to have laws in place so that when a guy went temporarily insane, he couldn't do a lot of damage. You could be insane for a while, but hopefully you'll come out of it. And you'll wake up, and you'll come back to your senses. Now what we do when they go insane... We say, great, you're insane, you're an idiot, let us help you. Because that's when we came up with no-fault divorce. See, it used to be the laws undergirded the culture. Now the laws don't undergird the culture. 
they work against the culture and they work against biblical truth. So you get to 1 Timothy 3. And in 1 Timothy 3, what you got going on is that you've got Paul giving the requirements that are necessary in the lives of men who are to lead and govern the church. Notice that I said the requirements for the men who are to lead and govern the church. Because we're so hip and we're so cool in the evangelical church now that we say women can be elders in the church. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And if you study church history, uh, it's always been understood that men are to lead the church. Men are to lead the family. Men are to lead the church. Except in the Arminian, Wesleyan, holiness branch of Christianity, they historically have had women in leadership. No other branch of Christianity has until the 60s. And then what happened in the 60s? We got influenced by the culture. So now if you're hip and now if you're cool, you've got to have women in leadership. Just amazing. And it just, it, it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. I spoke in a uh, United Methodist Church two weekends ago in Indiana. And when I was there, sometime during the weekend, I said, you know, what's interesting is that I'm in a United Methodist Church. Usually I don't even get invited to United Methodist Churches because most of them are screwed up. I mean, they're really screwed up. Uh, if John Wesley walked into most United Methodist churches, he'd throw them out in their ear. Because anything goes in most United Methodist churches. This is obviously a United Methodist church that still believes the Word of God. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't have invited me if you didn't. Uh, you would have thrown me out last night. But you believe in the Word of God. It's just not United Methodist Church, but they come to mind because they've lost their minds. I mean, anybody can be. The scriptures don't matter. I had a call, it's probably 10 years ago, from a guy in a Methodist church in Atlanta. Big church. Oh, we got this many thousand people. Duh, duh, duh. Hey, we'd like to have you in to do a men's conference. I said, tell me the name of your church, such and such United Methodist Church. I said, you know, are you? Sh I I'm not sure you want me in there. He goes, oh, no, no, you know, we read your book, and no, oh, oh, it'd be great. We'd love to have you come in, and, and, you know, just can you send us some details? And I said, yeah. I said, no, you know, I don't get too many calls from United Methodist Churches. He goes, no, I think it's fine. I just need to, I just need to run it by our men's ministry leader, and as soon as she approves it, I'll get back to you. <laughs> That's what he said. I, I said, hey, let me ask you something. Did you just say you were going to run it by your men's ministry? He says, yeah, we got a pastor of men's ministries. And she's a woman? He goes, yeah. I said, have you got a women's ministry in your church? He goes, yeah. I said, do you have a man over that? He goes, oh, no. I said, this is why you don't want me to come. <laughs> and this is why I won't come. Because uh, you guys are all screwed up. I said, why are you in that church, man? He goes, well, I've been in it for years. I said, yeah, that's not a good reason, is it? I said, so what other issues do you have in your church about the word of God not being the authority? He goes, oh, we got this and this and this. I said, so why are you there? He said, well, I've really been thinking about that. I said, I think you really ought to think about it. Because let me tell you something. If you've got a woman in charge of men's ministry, you're screwed up. And any guy worth the salt, not coming. To hear some chick in ecclesiastical robes. 
She's got nothing to say. She's out of her league. She's probably not a believer. She doesn't know Christ. But I want to be friends with you. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. Utter nonsense. In 1 Timothy 3, you got the requirements for the men that are leading the church. And I'll tell you, it's scary. I get concerned because a lot of evangelical churches are punting on this. It just amazes me. It amazes me. I'll tell you what, the day that happens at Stonebriar, I'm out of here. I don't think it's going to happen at Stonebriar. Do you? I don't. Because we're, we're anchored on the Word of God. But you know what happens? Churches and church institutions have about a 50-year lifespan before they get screwed up. Now, we're early. We're young. We're doing well. We'll continue to do well. But at somewhere around the age of 50, evangelical institutions get weird. And you can just track it. You see? Kind of sobered you a little bit, didn't it? But have any of you guys seen evangelical churches that used to be real solid that aren't anymore? Oh, I have. Sure. Where are we here? First Timothy 3. It's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. Uh, it doesn't say if any woman. It says if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It's a fine work he desires to do. When we say overseer, we're speaking of what we would call elder. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. As Chuck has said uh, so well, ministry is a character profession. Don't, you don't ever forget that. If you're a small group leader, I, I, how many years ago did I hear Chuck say this? I, I don't know, but it was profound. He said, you can be a good accountant and sleep around and still be a good accountant. You can be an insurance salesman and sleep around and still be a very good insurance salesman. But you cannot be a pastor and sleep around and be a good pastor. You cannot be a Sunday school teacher and sleep around and be a good pastor. You cannot be an usher and sleep around and be an usher who's serving from your heart the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ministry, any ministry, is a character profession, right? Notice all these requirements. Doesn't talk about a guy's net worth. Doesn't talk about his guy's education. Doesn't talk about his country club. It talks about his character. His character. It's all in the present tense. An overseer then must be above reproach. He's clean. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have stuff in our past, but it means that we have dealt with our past and that there's been enough time that's gone by that a guy is demonstrating godly character. Okay? In other words, he's trustworthy. I think it was Peter Drucker that was speaking to a class of graduate students. And he was speaking on the importance of integrity and trust. And, and one of the students says, well, how do you develop trustworthiness? And Drucker looked at him and said, well, try being trustworthy. And that's how you do it. You don't need to go read a book. You're just trustworthy. Try that on for size. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And I'm going to stop there. There's a lot of other characteristics here, qualifications. He must be the husband of one wife. Now, Here's what I want to camp on. In the original, that can be translated this way. He must be a one-woman kind of man. 
See, when it says the husband of one wife, what it's talking about is his heart. He's the husband of one wife. But see, in his heart of hearts, that one wife, he's a one-woman kind of man. He's committed to her 100% from his gut. Now, as we wrap this up, okay, we've talked about our culture. We've talked about snapshots of stupid. Here's what I want to say to the married guys. Because the married guys, all you guys are important. But quite frankly, the married guys are the backbone of the church. Because you're married and because you have your wives and you have kids. And I'm going to tell you something. Joe Aldrich said one time, all God's people are precious. All of God's people are equally precious. But not all of God's people are equally strategic. Men are strategic. You know why? Because you're the leaders. And you know what I want to say to you guys? And what I want to say to me? Who are married? You know what I want to say to you? I want to say, stay married. That's what I want to say. I don't care if you're married three weeks or 39 years. Stay married. In other words, what I'm saying to you is it ought to be the goal. Every guy in this room is married to be a one-woman kind of man. You say, well, Steve, I really don't want to be an elder. Fine. That's fine. Not everyone's going to be an elder. But you ought to have a desire to be a one-woman kind of man. As we finish, let me give you a couple ways. I might give you three. I might give you four on how to be a one-woman kind of man. Okay? And I'll say this to you guys. I first worked on this 18 years ago in my personal study, and I work on it every day. I want to finish strong in my marriage. That's what I want to do. I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be an idiot. I don't want to get sucked into something. So to be a one-woman kind of man, number one, I'm to be a one-woman kind of man with my mind. With my mind. Everything starts in the mind. That's why Proverbs 4, Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart. Watch over your heart. You say, well, that's not your mind. Yes, it is. In the scripture, your heart is you. It's everything. It's your mind. It's your will. It's your emotions. It's your personality. When my grandpa died, and I was seven, and I went to his funeral, it's the first time I'd ever seen an open casket. First time I'd ever been to a funeral. And I walked in there, and there was my grandpa. And I remember looking in that casket, looking at my grandpa, and I was seven years old. You know what popped into my head? He's not in there. Because he wasn't. His heart wasn't there. His personality, his emotions, his mind. My grandpa wasn't in there. He was gone. He was in heaven. He's not in there. See, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about you. What does it say? Watch over your heart. Guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. The mind is central in Christianity. The mind is the central battleground. So if I'm going to be a one-woman kind of man in this culture, i got to begin with my mind. i got to begin with my thought life, right? It's all thought life. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything except temptation. Well, Oscar had a problem. Because that's what you're supposed to resist. I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, if you look upon ham and eggs and lust, you've already committed breakfast in your heart. Where does lust occur? In the mind. So as, as men, as husbands and fathers and grandfathers, I've got to be committed every day in my, what? 
in my mind, in my thought life. I've got to protect myself. I've got to protect what goes into my mind because that's the well, that's the deep well of my life. It's the artesian well of my life and you don't want to poison your own well. So the first time you looked at pornography, you can still remember what you saw. Amazing, isn't it? Because it's just burned into your mind. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul said that, and the context was of philosophical speculations, Paul said we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when we hear false teaching, we take every thought captive. But I want to give you an application. When we're tempted sexually, we've got to take every thought captive. And what does that mean? It means you butkus. Right? Were you here last week? When sexual temptation comes, you step in like butkus, you hit the pulling guard, you undercut the full back. You don't, you, you don't turn into a lamb chop. You get aggressive because it's war. You've got to guard your mind. You've got to guard your heart. But you don't stop there. It starts with the mind. So one woman kind of man with the mind. Number two, one woman kind of man with the eyes. With the eyes. Some of you guys are old enough to remember the Flamingos. Rock and roll group of the 50s. They only had one hit. But it was a good song. Shabab, shabab. Ooh. Shabab, shabab. Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> you know what the song says? Are the stars out tonight? I can't tell if it's cloudy or bright. Because I only have eyes for you. And the guy goes on and says, my love is a special kind of blind love. I can't see anyone else but you. Shabbat Shabbat. Now, that ought to be the theme song of every Christian guy in this room. And your wife ought to know it's your theme song. Hey, there's all kinds of women out there, all kinds of chicks out there. But you need to be a one-woman kind of man with your eyes. I can't remember if I told you this last week. I'll never forget. I'm parked at the intersection with my boys, taking them to school. It's a red light. And this gal's walking across the crosswalk. And half her breasts are hanging out. And she, she's got a skirt cut up to her cheeks. And she's just, I mean, just all hanging out. I mean, she was. My gosh, it was embarrassing. And she walked by. And John was about eight. And we're sitting there, you know. And he said, hey, Dad. And I said, yeah. He says, you know, Dad, I watch you all the time. I said, you watch me all the time? He goes, yeah. He said, I watch you all the time. He said, I was watching you when that girl walked by. I said, really? He said, yeah, I'm always watching to see if you're going to look. He said, I watch you all the time, Dad. He said, I watch you when you don't even know I'm watching you. That's what he told me. Now, Mary didn't hire him. He said, you know why I watch you, Dad? Because he said, I, I know what you teach, Dad. The kid was eight years old. He said, so I watch you, Dad. He said, I watch you like a hawk. And Josh watches you too. (laughs) 
And he said, you know what, Dad? He said, he said you know what, Dad? He said, you, you don't look. And I said, well, you know what, John? Let me tell you something. I've had times when I've looked. But what I try to do is I've tried to train myself not to look. Because I want to look. You see, I really want to look. Because you see some girl walking by like that, the way we're wired, we're men. And see that, you see some gal like that and you want to look. But see, you've got to train yourself to not look. Because you see, I've made a commitment to mommy. And, and sometimes, you know what, John? Sometimes I'll look. And I try to look away. I try to catch myself. Sometimes I'm tempted. And it's just a daily fight. And I fight it every day of my life. And you'll fight it every day of your life. But you never quit fighting. Hmm. I'll never forget him saying that. I watch you like a hawk. Hmm. And they do watch us like hawks. Don't they? I remember... You can't trust television. We were watching, when we'd watch a football game, I always had my hands on the remote because I never knew what the commercials were going to be. I remember we were watching a ball game. I, we were watching something, and I didn't have the remote. We were just watching. It was a game. I can remember. We were watching a game, and all of a sudden, the screen went dark. What happened? I looked over, and Josh was over there on the couch, and he had the remote. And the screen, I said, Josh, what, what, what's going on? And he said, Dad, I thought it was going to be bad. And he was about seven. I said, that's really interesting. You thought that commercial was going to get bad? He goes, yeah. I said, Josh, that's pretty good. Because it wasn't bad yet, was it? He goes, no, Dad. But you thought it might get bad, and you know what you did? You turned it off. I said, Joshy, I know guys that are 55 years old that can't do that. And you're seven. That's character. That's pretty good, man. I'm proud of you. Give me the remote. No. <laughs> well, wasn't that sweet? Now, you know what? Where did he learn that? By watching me with the remote. See? Because I want to be a one-woman kind of man in my house with my eyes. You know what Job said in 31.1? Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze upon a virgin in lust. Or a young woman in lust. Have you made that covenant? See, Steve, that's hard. You're dang right, that's hard. See, what that means is, Paul said, discipline yourself for godliness. This is, this is what we talked about last week. It's a fight. Do you remember when President Reagan was shot coming out of that hotel room? That hotel? Sure. You've seen it a million times. What's the natural reaction? What's the natural reaction when shots ring out? hit the deck. Everybody did, except for the Secret Service agents. And you remember that shots rang out, the agent puts Reagan down into the limo, and you remember the guy standing there right by the, you remember that, you've seen it a hundred times, the guy standing there, shots ring out, and, you, and you've seen it in slow motion. The shots ring, he blinks his eyes, he starts to dip, because it's his natural reaction. He catches himself, checks his natural instincts, goes against his natural instincts, and turns towards the shot, takes a shot. 
right? Why did that secret agent, secret service agent, go against his natural instincts? He had trained himself. That's what we got to do. We train ourselves for godliness. Before you can take a marathon, you got to take a lap around the high school track. So the next time you see some chick, come on, what do you do? And you know what amazes me? Between you and me, you know what guys? Amazes me how women dress come in the church. I've seen women walk in here and I'm like, what the crud are you thinking? Turn my eyes upon Jesus. And you're not helping. I, does it not amaze you sometimes? What are these airheads thinking here? They're not thinking. So then we're going to have to fight. So what do you do? The next time that happens, what do you do? You train yourself, Lord Jesus, help me to look away. Just help me. Just this time, help me. And then next time, help me to... You steal yourself by the power of Christ, and you go against your natural instincts, and you look away. This is called practical Christianity. So it is the mind, the eyes. Have I talked about the eyes? Yeah, I only have eyes for you. So some chick walks by. She shouldn't get your eyes. Your wife should. Uh, let's do here, number three. Let's do uh, mind, eyes. Let's do uh, lips. You know what this means? You're a one-woman kind of man with your lips. It means you're careful what you say to women. It means you're not a flirt. It means you don't make jokes. I've been in church staff meetings years ago, uh, one guy in particular, and he'd make jokes with his other gal in the staff, and they were always kidding about running away and go having an affair. Church staff meeting. They were just, you know, and one day I was talking to him, and I said, hey, you know, why do you do that? He goes, oh, we're just having fun. I said, yeah, but you know what? That's not appropriate. You're better than that. Why don't you not do that? Because you know what? I'll be honest with you. Everybody kind of gets embarrassed when you do that. He said, no one's ever told me. I said, it's because nobody wants to talk about it. But you're better than that, man. And you love your wife. Everybody knows you love your wife. See, we give ourselves permission, and they're cracks. I'm going to be a one-woman kind of man with my lips. Here's the next one. I'm going to be a one-woman kind of man with my hands. You know what that means? You're careful how you touch women. We used to, when I was in seminary, we had a deacon in our church, and he was a greeter, and every time a woman, a nice-looking chick, would come in, he became anointed. <laughs> and he would hug them, and I'm telling you what, he'd try to feel them. I watched him. Nobody said a word because he was the biggest giver in the church. And a year later, he ran off with the youth director's wife. Sucker never was a one-woman kind of man. You ought to be so squeaky clean with your lips and your hands that if anyone ever made a charge of sexual, um, what do they call it, harassment against you at your job, everybody would fall to the ground in laughter. They'd say, not that guy. Are you kidding? That guy's squeaky clean. He's a one-woman kind of man. Lastly, you'd be a one-woman kind of man with your feet. <clears throat> what this means is, is that when you see immorality, you don't hang around and check it out for its deeper artistic meaning. Hmm. I wonder what that is really trying to say. It's crap. Get out of there. Paul said, flee immorality. 
flee. Sometimes in order to flee immorality, we're going to have to do different. You say, Steve, this is a little extreme, isn't it? We remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if your eye offends you, put on sunglasses. You remember that passage? Jesus said, if your hand offends you, put it in a cast. That's not what he said. He said, if your eye offends you, what do you do? Pluck it out. He's using hyperbole. He's making a point. He's talking about sexual temptation. There are times when extreme behavior is called for. You get sexually tempted, you run. What did Joseph do with Potiphar's wife? He ran. He ran. There is a godly man. He was a one-woman kind of man. The guy wasn't even married yet. But see, he loved Christ. So in order to avoid sexual temptation, you're going to have to be a one-woman kind of man with your feet. And all kinds of situations come up. To be a one-woman kind of man and get away from sexual temptation, you might have to, in one situation, you might have to uh, uh, get on the bus, Gus, in order to get rid of sexual temptation. Or in another situation, you might have to drop off the key, Lee, to get out of sexual temptation. Or you may need to make a new plan. Stan, thank you so much for that. That, that song is called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Why don't we turn around and make it 50 Ways to Be a One-Woman Kind of Man? Let me tell you something. Your wife will love you for it. And your kids will love you for it. And your grandkids will love you for it. And Christ will bless your life. I don't care what your past is. You come to Christ, old things are passed away. All things become new. Let's quit being stupid. And let's follow him in this area of our lives. Let's pray. We ask you to help us, Lord Jesus. Give us the want to. Help us to utilize the power of your word and the power of your spirit. And apply our Christianity. We won't get it right every time. But we want, we want to grow in this area with your help. In Jesus' name we